In the video, the gentleman said, tell me I was a good man. So desperately, he didn't want to have wasted his life, even if it was in honor of one who had given their life for him. You know, Scripture is replete with reminders that there is more to live for than most of us wake up every day ready to charge today in order to live for. We think about passages that some of us memorize, maybe when we were younger, maybe if we were in Awana, some of us who are younger, maybe older ones you memorized in Sunday school or at a vacation Bible school, like James 4.14, what is your life? It is a vapor, it appears for just a moment and then it vanishes And so it should be ingrained within us in an early age that our life is a vapor. I was honored to do a couple of funerals this week. And the funeral I officiated yesterday was of a lady who lived to be 96 years of age. And even at 96, compared to eternity, life is a vapor. It's gone before you know it. Hebrews 9.27 gives us that statistic on death. It is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. That stat, one out of one die. Everybody will face that day where their life either comes to an end or the Lord Jesus comes again and calls us to Himself. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. And yet decisions in this vapor of a life In this brief time that we have upon this planet, your decisions that you make every day on how you spend your time and how you spend your life, those decisions will directly determine how you will spend eternity. Are you living with the end in mind? In the Gospels, Jesus tells parables. Parables like wedding feasts that it's important that we be ready for. Parables like a man who would find a pearl of great price and go and sell all that he had so that he could come and purchase the field and then have that pearl of great price for himself. Speaking of what it means to live for the kingdom, he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things that we worry about on a daily basis will take care of themselves. They'll be added unto us. And then we see in the gospel stories like that of the rich young ruler who comes But because he wanted to hold on to the things that this world had to offer, he was not willing to live for something bigger. He was not willing to live for the kingdom and give his heart and his life to Jesus Christ. The challenge is still the same for each one of us. The challenge is for us to wake up every day and embrace for ourselves and pass on to a new generation and to pass on to those who are coming to faith in Christ at all ages to instill within them a mindset of living with the end in mind. I'm I'm talking about every day waking up when something is so heavy on your heart and, and so ingrained in your thought life that you're having to live with the end in mind. And you begin to ask the question, what difference will this make for eternity? What difference will this make for the kingdom of God? Am I wasting my time? Am I wasting my life. That's the challenge. It may be more challenging for us today than it was when Peter wrote to a persecuted church that knew that they could give their lives for the gospel at any moment. In in, in the freedoms we enjoy today, we also have more pleasures available to us than ever before. 
we have more doubts being stamped on the faith and the Word of God than ever before. More opportunities to be busy than we've ever been in our lives. We have more distractions. We have more entertainment. We have more coping mechanisms. We have more toys. We have more excuses. We have more to keep our mind off of eternity and more to keep our mind off of the kingdom than at any point in history and probably more than any other nation on the face of the earth. But it doesn't change the fact we're still going to die. Life is still short. Heaven and hell are still real. Eternity is still forever. And at this point, Peter doesn't argue the reality of all of this. He doesn't argue the, the reality of the truth of God's Word, the reality of heaven and hell and eternity. He doesn't argue all of that. He, he argues the urgency of the moment. And he gives us a couple of instructions. And if we will begin to build our lives on the Word of God and, and on what Peter says in this brief passage, if we will say, you know what, I'm going to take this, I'm going to embrace it for myself, and I'm going to pass it on to my children, my grandchildren, the next generation. I'm going to do all I can to instill this belief. When pastors like me, family ministers like Pastor Ben will say, we're going to make this a priority. We are going to instill this in whomever God gives us influence over, then it can be revolutionary for the church. And this, this first principle to live by here is that we need to get back to the place where we die daily to the passions of this world. We have to die daily to the passions of this world. Now I think a key verse in all of this text that will help us kind of evaluate whether or not we're actually doing this, whether we're just being hearers of the Word or doing the words. I think a key passage is found in verse 4 when he says, uh, they're going to think it strange. He, he says, you know, we... we we may think it's the norm, but they're going to think it's strange in regard to this. The Holman says that they're going to be surprised that you don't run with them. This is Peter who said that we are a peculiar people. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, but God's own special, God's peculiar people. And so if somebody doesn't think you're strange by the way you appropriate what we're going to read here, you may not be actually putting it into practice. And so keep that in mind. Do they think it's strange, first of all, verse 1, that, they, that you find your identity in Christ? He says, you know, going back to Christ's suffering, since He suffered in the flesh, we're to arm ourselves with the same resolve. In Romans chapter 6, he talks about being baptized into Christ's death and raised to walk in this newness of life. And so we now find our identity in Christ. So there are certain passions of this world that we have died to. In Ephesians chapter 2, we're told that we were dead in trespasses and sins, but now we're made alive because of what Jesus Christ did for us when He saved us from that life that was no life at all, 
but a past that was in bondage. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 23, Jesus says this is the mindset you're going to have if you're dying to the passions of this world and you're following Jesus Christ, if you're living for eternity. He says this, if any man will follow me, let him deny himself. See, the death you die will not be at first a physical death, It will be that you die to the things of this world, that you die to your flesh, that you die to self, and you come alive in Christ. And he says, so take up your cross. And what he says here is interesting in Luke 9, 23. He says, let him take up his cross daily. That means the fact that you say, well, I've been saved, and I've been there, and I've done that, was not the end of it all. It was the beginning of it all. It was the beginning of a process where you wake up in the morning and you say, I've got to die to myself today. And I've got to put the Lord Jesus Christ first and foremost in my life, and I've got to identify with Him today. That means probably some of us mid-morning or at lunchtime have to pull away from our routine and die to self because we start to get in the flesh a little bit. That means for some men here, when you get home from work sometimes and you pull in the driveway and you feel like being selfish and making everything in life all about you, Before you go into that family, you're going to have to say, Lord, right here where I sit, I die to self, and I put you first, and I'm going to be your servant in my home. It means again and again and again, we're dying daily to self and living to Christ, identifying with Him, making a difference for eternity. They thought it strange when Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so we have to die daily to the passions of this world as we identify with Christ. And people will think it's strange. And they'll think it's strange, verse 2, because as a result of this, we'll be more concerned with the will of God in our lives. He says, in order to live the remaining of the time in the flesh, what time God gives me in this body, on this planet, I'm to be a good steward of, and I'm going to live that for the will of God. Not for my human desires, but like a good soldier of the cross, I'm reporting to duty saying, Lord Jesus, not my will, but your will be done. And then he tells us in verse 3, we can't waste our time. He says, you've spent enough time already doing the will of the pagans. And probably there were some who had come to faith in Christ and as new Christians, he's saying, look, the old life is, is done with. you spent enough time doing that. And for others, perhaps in the church, who were called brothers and sisters in Christ, he was saying, you're still kind of doing some of those things. And so, enough! You spend enough time doing that. You've got to start living for eternity. You've got to start living with the end in mind. And so people should think it's strange. And he begins to name what we might call sinful and destructive behaviors. And he's saying, the, it's not just that, by the way, it's not just that it's sin, and it's not just that it's destructive behavior that you hurt you. Here's the thing about sin. Yes, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, and he wants to wreck your life and get you caught up in all kinds of things that will bring you into sinful bondage and bring destruction in your life. But he's also got a bigger plan than that. 
His desire is to take you, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and render you ineffective for the kingdom of God. And so it's not just that you're the victim. It's that by you being a victim, by you being in bondage, by you being distracted, by you being involved in the things of this world, there are consequences that others will face because they're missing out on you doing what you were called to do to minister to the gospel into their life. So nobody can say, yes, this is sin, but I'm only hurting me. Your sin renders you incapable of being the minister God's called you to be to others. And so the devil has an ulterior motive other than just wreaking havoc on you and your life. He wants to take you out of the game so that you don't make a difference in the lives of others. It's kind of like if you were running down a sidewalk. You were one of these people, and you're kind of like Pastor Ben. You just run for fun. You just run to stay in shape. And it's kind of like, I'm running. I'm running to take care of myself, running to stay in shape. And I were to see you, and I decide I'm going to play a practical joke, and I just come out, and I get in front of you, and I distract you, and I keep you from running. Maybe I tell you some lies. I deceive you a little bit to get you involved in something else so that you're not running. And most of us think that's the way the devil kind of works. He, does, he wants to harm me. He wants to get in the way of, uh, of what I'm doing. But it would be different because Pastor Ben used to be a firefighter. He still is. He's fighting a different kind of fire today. But he used to be a firefighter. If he were running down a sidewalk because he was on his way to a fire where he needed to rescue some people, and then I run out, and then I distract him, and then I play games, and then I lie to him. He's going to be a little bit more focused. And he's going to say, I don't have time for these games. I don't have time for this distraction. Why? Because now he's not just running for himself. He's running for a greater cause, the salvation of someone else. And so when you think about the distractions the enemy wants to place in our lives so that we're not living with the end in mind, it's just not that he's trying to mess us up is that he's trying to get us to quit thinking about how our lives should be impacting others as he concludes this text for the glory of God. He wants to render you ineffective. So he gives you a list. What, what, what was distracting them? What, what were those things that had been binding them for long enough? And so in verse 3, we kind of see that list. And he says, if you're not doing these things, they're going to think it what? strange they're going to be surprised like what really you're not involved no way are you hearing that trinity family are you hearing are are people saying to you really that's kind of weird you're kind of strange you should be we should be hearing that on a regular basis and so he says carrying on uh, unrestrained behavior, lasciviousness, says evil desires, that's lust, where you're just saying, man, if it feels good, do it, I'm going to get involved in it, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, you know, last night, we were at a, a beautiful wedding as Tucker and Becky got married. And I believe it was Jeff that made the statement as we were sitting around the table celebrating, and I won't tell on everybody who was dancing, some have seen the videos, but 
Um, we were celebrating it. And Jeff made this statement. He said, you know, Christian weddings where there's no alcohol served, those are the most fun weddings you can go to. Because Christians know how to have a good time in the Lord. Man, Jesus was praised from beginning to end. And I mean, it was a celebration of, of what God had done in the lives of individuals. And Christians know how to party without all this stuff and give God glory and remember what we did the next day. I didn't have a bit of a hangover this morning. And I did a, a funeral and a wedding yesterday. And it was a joyous day of ministry as a dear saint we said goodbye to. And then we uh, said hello to a new married couple. Christians don't need this. He says, you spend enough time doing all of this. And so when it comes to how you celebrate, how you have a good time, do people look at you and think it's strange? Really? You didn't have that at your wedding? Really? You didn't do that? Really? After the prom, you didn't? Really? Man, you're strange. They think it strange. And then he throws in not only this, this list, but, but he says lawless idolatry. We're not guilty of idolatry. We don't have little Buddhas sitting on our mantelpiece that we bow down and worship to or pray to or rub its belly or anything like that, do we? I mean, we don't have uh, statues of false gods. We don't have the, the, like the Old Testament with the asteros and the bells, do we? We don't. We could worship a lot of things. Some of us worship work and we become workaholics. And our families never see us. We worship money. Today in the world we worship play. When I said that there were more distractions than there's ever been before, the, the, the three words that most pastors talk about when we get together, I guess uh, because we have to alliterate this, I'll say um, bows, boats, and ball. It's like, man... The church would be full if it wasn't for bows, if it wasn't for people hunting, boats, people on the lake, and ball. People playing ball somewhere. Man, the places of worship would just be full if it wasn't for that. But we have so many distractions in the world today. And then there are others, and this is the one that makes us say, man, this would really make us strange. There are others who will say this, well, I want you to know, Pastor, my family is everything to me. My family comes first, and they are everything to me. And you know my heart, and you know this church. We have made family a, an important buzzword around here. We make family important. We have a full-time minister to families to equip us, not necessarily a youth director or a uh, babysitter for the children, but we have a minister to families to help equip the home. So we know the family's important. But when somebody says, my family is everything, Man, my family comes first in my life. And they leave out a phrase like, oh, after my relationship with Jesus Christ. Then that becomes idolatry. And Jesus says, unless you hate mother and brother, hate. Jesus spoke from hyperbole saying, get the point. Your love for Jesus Christ should be so much greater than everything else that even your love for your family would seem like hate. And when that's not the case, I know so many people that said family is everything and then they wondered why family fell apart and it's because Jesus wasn't everything. 
But when you make Jesus everything and you live for eternity, those people I know that make Jesus everything, their families do a lot better than those who make family everything. You try to say, well, I'm going to make my marriage everything. That's the most important thing in my life. The marriage will struggle if you don't make Jesus number one in your life. My wife will tell you, and she's over there serving with the kids right now, but she would tell you that if I'm loving Jesus like I ought to be loving Jesus, then I'm going to be loving her better than I could ever love her. So he says idolatry, and I think that's the one we struggle with the most. And he says, enough. You've spent enough time. You need to start living with the end in mind, and that means you've got to die daily to the passions of this world. Or are we still plunging in? They think it's strange. People are saying, what? You're not going to do that? Really? Man, every year we could count on, you're not going to do that? You're not going to be involved in that? It's crazy. They think it's strange that you don't run with them. It says, they will give an account one day to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. We'll come back to that judgment in just a moment. And then he gives us this strange verse. You've got to be careful not to take it out of context. Remember, we added the numbers later. Peter wrote this as a letter, and he said, For this reason the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead, so that although they might be judged by men in the fleshly realm, they might live by God to the spiritual realm. Now, I believe he's referring back to this other controversial passage with a hundred interpretations that has to do with with Noah and the the preaching that took place. And some people are saying, oh, you mean that means after people die, they get a chance to respond to the gospel? No. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That gospel might be clearly articulated to the Old Testament saints who were looking forward to that, but they were still saved by grace through faith, looking forward to what we look back on. We don't get to change our mind or anything after we die. What he was saying, and if you go back to the passage about Noah in chapter 3, is that the Spirit of Christ, I believe he's saying, was in Noah preaching righteousness for those people who would reject the message and later be lost in the flood. But Christ, by His Spirit, coming upon Noah, preached the message, and out of that it says, eight were saved, speaking of Noah and his family. Why is that important to take hold of when we live with the end in mind? Because in Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus was asked, what will it be like when you come again? He says, it's going to be just like it was in the days of Noah, when everybody was so distracted, they had their mind on everything else, they thought they were going to live forever, and then the end came. And as it were in the days of Noah, he said, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. That means your death might sneak up on you before you expected it, or this life you, you just wake up one morning, how many of us have done this? You wake up one morning, you say, man, I'm getting old. Man, try doing a wedding when you're like, man, everybody in the wedding party could be my kids. That day sneaked up on me. You're like, where did life go? And then one day, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to split the heavens and call us home. It could be today. And we need to be living with an eye toward the sky, but our heart toward a mission. So I believe he's referencing that to remind us to live with the end in mind. Ask yourself, am I caught up too much in the passions of this world? Making too important the things that are 
not really of eternal significance. So those things that we mentioned a moment ago that just aren't going to last forever. Or am I even trapped in sin that's robbing me of life and vitality to live with the end in mind? Or do I daily die to the passions of this life? And then we have to look at these verses 7 through 11 here because there's a positive. Not just don't do this. If we spend enough of our time doing what God's called us to do, we won't have time to do the other anyway. So look at the positive side of this. Daily come alive to the pursuits that last forever. What are those pursuits that last forever? He says in verse 7, look, you want to come alive. You want to be alert. He says the end of all things is near. So we've got to live with the end in mind by being clear-headed or sober-minded, or some translations say be alert. We, we used to say when I was coaching the Little League, come alive, wake up. So we've got to come alive and be alert. Be disciplined in prayer. How's your prayer life? Am I praying for an awareness of God's presence in my life and an awareness of how short my time is on the face of this earth? Verse 8, above all, keep your love for one another. It full strength. Love covers a multitude of sins. There's no time to waste when it comes to relationships. And so that means not only in our relationship with God do we need to keep short accounts and ask for forgiveness and receive that, but we need to walk as forgiving people. We don't have time to harbor unforgiveness even for a day. So that means we've got to forgive and let it, let it go. As uh, One evangelist said, remember the word Fido, F-I-D-O. He said it meant forget it and drive on. But sometimes we've got to forgive it and drive on. Fido. There was a viral video that went around. I was talking about fires a moment ago. A viral video of a lady who was standing there going on and on about the fire that was taking place in the apartment complex behind her. She said a phrase that became a catchphrase for our nation. She said, ain't nobody got time for that. And we need to live our lives when it comes to things like the unforgiveness that puts a fire between us and somebody else. And we need to say, ain't nobody got time for unforgiveness. We don't have time to put up with that. Not in our own lives. we just got to let it go. Forget it. Forgive it. Drive on. Verse 9 reminds us we need open hearts and homes. He tells us that we need to be showing hospitality to one another. And he says, and do this as you're serving others. Do it without complaining. Do it without complaining. I'm so guilty. You know, I can be over there washing the dishes thinking about, man, if, if, if my son would clean up after himself, Right? We, we, we're like, I'm going to serve, but I'm going to complain while I do it. Man, if they would get somebody else to keep the nursery. Man, if they would get somebody else to teach this class. I'm going to serve, but I ain't got to like it. And so he says, do this, show hospitality, and because time is short, do it without complaining. Paul told the church at Philippi, you want to rejoice always. He also told them, do all things without grumbling are complaining. That means we just got to get over stuff. Richard Carlson wrote a book titled Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. The subtitle was, and it's all small stuff. Here's a couple of quotes from Richard Carlson in his book. He says, we forget that life isn't as bad as we're making it out to be. We also forget that when we're blowing things out of proportion, 
We are the ones doing the blowing. Thinking about, man, this is such a big deal. Who made it a big deal? The one who's saying, this is such a big deal. Imagining yourself, he says, at your own funeral. I had a couple of opportunities to do that this week. Imagining yourself at your own funeral allows you to look back at your life while you still have the chance to make some important changes. To say, you know, I just don't have time to spend my time worrying, fretting, grumbling, and complaining, and griping. I've just got to get on with it. There's work to be done. The days are evil, Ephesians says. Verses 10 and 11, he kind of gives us a key here with redeeming the time because of the days being evil. This is based on the gift that you've received. In other words, find out. We've been looking at this in our life groups. Find out that gift you've received. He said everyone should use it. Use those gifts and abilities and passions God's given you to serve others. You know, one of the quickest ways to stop grumbling and complaining about something is to put others first and start serving others, and God will so give you a blessing. Now, scientifically, I could even explain to you that we get an endorphin kick when we serve others and are a blessing to others. But it's more important than that. It's a spiritual Holy Ghost joy that comes over your heart when you get your mind off of yourself and who hurt your feelings and who's bothered you, and you begin to say, how can I serve somebody else? He says... Everyone should use it as good stewards, good managers of the grace of God. God's given you this gift. He says, if, everyone, if anyone speaks, in other words, if you have a speaking gift or, or a gift that puts you out front, then use it. But do it as a, with a word from God. But if it's service, if, if maybe you're one of those behind-the-scenes servants, I love Peter because he always simplifies things for everybody. And so rather than giving us a long list of spiritual gifts like Paul does in a couple of different places, he says, look, there are gifts that put you out front and there are gifts that put you behind the scenes. We've all got gifts in one or the other of those areas, so get busy using those gifts. And you won't have time to grumble and complain if you're doing what God's called you to do. If anyone serves, he should do with the strength that God provides because if you try to do it in the flesh, you're going to find yourself grumbling and complaining. Do it in the Spirit, and you'll be filled with love and joy and peace while you do it. And he says, so that in everything God may be glorified. Who are you doing it for anyway? You're doing it all for the glory of God. You're living with the end in mind. You want to make an eternal difference on this planet, and so you live for those things that last forever. And so he says, just get busy serving the Lord. Start serving, he says, and you'll stop complaining. But you know that would stand to reason that the reverse is also true. Start complaining and you'll start serving. If you listen to that, I think if every one of us would get this, and boy, if every church across our land would get this, if you start serving, you'll stop complaining. But if you start complaining, you'll stop serving. There's a couple of judgments that the Bible speaks of. God is ready, Peter said, to judge the living and the dead. He's ready to hold us accountable whether we've died or not. But there are two judgments to come as we live with the end in mind. The first one you can read about in Revelation chapter 20. It's called the Great White Throne Judgment. Every name 
not found written in the book of life at the great white throne judgment. Every name not found written in the book of life were cast into the lake of fire for eternity. And listen, if you don't know that you've given your heart and life to Jesus Christ, the one who died on the cross, who said no man comes to the Father except through me, the one who prayed, if there's any other way for people to get to heaven, Lord, let this cup be passed from me, but the one who knew there was no other way and said, nevertheless, not, your, not my will, but yours be done. And he went to the cross in our place. And if we haven't put our faith and trust in him, if we haven't given our life to Christ, eternity is too long to be wrong. And we need to pass that on to a generation. You need to come to know Jesus. Eternity is too long to be wrong. And this life is just a vapor compared to eternity. And so that's one judgment. The other judgment, I think many of us this morning are in need of being reminded of, is found in 1 Corinthians 3, one place that it's found, 1 Corinthians 3. Describing the judgment seat of Christ where Christians are judged according to their works. It says in verse 10, according to God's grace that was given to me, as a skilled master builder, I have laid a foundation. And others... Another builds on it. Each one must be careful how he builds because no one can lay any other foundation than what was been laid. That is Jesus Christ that's speaking of. We don't have time for idolatry. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, those things that last, things that matter, wood, hay, or straw. Each one's work will become obvious for the day, that judgment day, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives, those things that he did that last for eternity, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, it will be lost. But he will be saved. This is talking about born-again Christians who are wasting time. He will be saved, yet it will be like an escape through fire. As by fire, we might say today, by the skin of your teeth. I don't want to be a Christian who just got by. I want to be one who hears the well done of God because I live for his glory. I didn't waste time. I didn't get busy complaining or harboring unforgiveness, but I got after it for the glory of God. Forgave quickly. Let things go. Forget it and drive on. Because life is short. And I'm being reminded of that. Every day, I look out and I see some of these young adults that were kids when I came here. Man, it flies. Would you pray with me?